It's my pleasure now to introduce Elder Gordon B. Hinckley, the baccalaureate speaker for this occasion. <clears throat> I thought I heard President Smith say the burial laureates speaker. President Smith, others of the general authorities, President Wilkinson and members of the faculty, graduates of 1958, brothers and sisters and friends, I pray for the inspiration of the Lord to direct my thoughts and words. I'd like to interpolate by saying that in trying to muster something to give to you tonight, I felt something like the college student of the old story who dawdled along through the quarter and then came examination day. He went into the classroom and the professor wrote on the board the questions and he wrote at the top of his paper, Lord of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. <laughs> and then he thought and scratched his head and repented of his indolence. And the hour passed. And the teacher called for papers. And he scribbled at the bottom, Lord of hosts, forsake us not. We have forgot, we have forgot. <laughs> During the years you've been at this institution, you've heard many great sermons from many inspirational speakers. This, as it were, is the farewell sermon. It therefore becomes a particularly demanding assignment, and I'm overwhelmed with a feeling of inadequacy. Constantly, for a period of four years, most of you have been under the tutelage of trained and gifted theologians. Every graduate of this institution should have a comprehensive knowledge of the history and doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ, both ancient and modern. I think, therefore, that it is neither necessary nor appropriate for me to attempt a weighty theological discussion, even if I were capable of such. I imagine also that you're a little weary of profundity at the end of Test Week. And so, at the risk of being considered trite and ordinary, I have concluded that I will share with you a few simple observations on matters with which you're already familiar. In doing so, I am reminded of a story I read in the Reader's Digest some years ago. When the Rural Electrification Authority, the REA, completed a project in a farm community, a survey was made to determine the first thing people did when the power was turned on. One woman reported that she baked bread in her new oven. Another, who all her life had known a scrubbing board, recounted the wonders of her new automatic washer. Another watched the water run from the kitchen faucet. 
the result of a power-driven pump. When the surveyor put the question to an elderly man, he simply replied, I just turned on the light and looked at Ma. Hadn't really seen her in 40 years. <laughs> and so I have the thought that during the short time we're together this evening, I might turn the light on some old familiar faces, hoping thereby to strengthen your love and appreciation for some of the great truths you've known for many years. As you leave here this week, some of you go on for graduate study. I hope we can compete with the sound effects. Some will don the uniform of our country. Some few will leave for missions. But most of you will take your places as journeymen in the workshops of the world. Many of you will marry. All of you will wish to. You will buy homes, furniture, automobiles. Money will become even more important than it has been. You will settle in strange neighborhoods, leaving the somewhat cloistered society in which you have here lived. Ambition to succeed will become a dominant influence in the lives of many of you. Success in the world will appear as a brighter star than many of the objectives which, in your present idealism, you consider most important. Money, social prestige, advancement in the company or organization with which you become affiliated, will pull you from old moorings and with soft and seductive music lull you into a conscience-saving rationalization that you did your part when you were younger, but that for the time being other things must receive attention if you are to get ahead in the world. You may doubt what I say. A quarter of a century ago I sat as you now sit although I'm a little embarrassed to say, in a different institution. It has been a most interesting thing to observe my classmates of that graduation. Some have kept the faith. In the hearts of a few, the candle of the Lord has grown even brighter than it burned in those days. But others have long since shed the cloak of faith and testimony and traded it for a gaudier garment woven of an inferior fabric, one which, when new, looked gayer, but which already is wearing thin. It's been interesting also to review the learning of my university days. It's somewhat alarming to know that some of the facts of that day, dogmatically set forth, have now become fiction. In medicine, physics, chemistry, some of the criteria have changed. In political science, attitudes have altered. In the law, there have been changes. Even in literature and art, there's been a shift of standards. Everywhere, change and modification except in the eternal verities of God. One thinks of the words of Scripture. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
And so tonight, as you leave this institution to take your places in the work of the world, I want to set before you a few postulates. When I was studying English literature, we spent some time with T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, as he was known. He's been discredited since, and I don't suppose you study him anymore. I recall little of the content of his book, but I vividly remember the title with which I was intrigued. It was called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Tonight I want to borrow that title which Lawrence himself took from the book of Proverbs. I want to hold up before you briefly as you look into the future seven pillars of wisdom, seven pillars of eternal truth which I believe will support and sustain you through all the years to come if you will heed them and conform your life to their standards. I shall be brief in dealing with each. You may fill in between the lines. Each is worthy of a sermon in itself. I wish I could get this gadget out of the way and this sweatshirt off so I could really talk to you. <laughs> I, I never know why they make these of such heavy material when they're to be worn in June. I name this as the first of my seven pillars. God lives and the door of heaven is open. You who are seated here tonight have reached an important way station of your lives. I should like to remind you that you have not traveled this road alone. Most of you have come from homes where daily prayer is held. I venture the thought that in those homes scarcely a day has passed when there has not gone up a petition in your behalf. Can't you see them now? Your family kneeling in a circle in the living room or about the kitchen table with father or mother or one of the children asking the Lord to bless Tom or Mary absent from home away at school. I, heard a, I recall a story I heard one of the brethren tell some years ago concerning one of our boys in the service. He was the only one of his kind in the barracks, and it became a little wearisome taking the butts and jibes of his associates. One day the going was particularly rough. He questioned whether it was worth it. He finally gave in and agreed to go to town with the crowd on Friday night pass in hand, he took off with his friends. It was easier now, he had made up his mind that he'd go along. But as they entered the town, there came before his mind's eye a picture. He saw the kitchen of his home in a small town in southern Utah. It was supper time. There were his family, kneeling about the table at the old painted wooden chair his father, his mother, two sisters, and a small brother. The little brother was praying, and he was asking the Lord to look after Jim in the army. That did it. He turned his lonely way with a snide comment from his companion ringing in his ear. But somehow he felt better than he'd felt in a long, long time. 
My young friends, as you have gone through this institution, you have prayed. I am confident that thousands of prayers have ascended to our Father during this past week of examination. And I am confident that you've had the assurance that the Lord has not failed you when you have done your part. Of all the great and wonderful and inspiring promises I have read, the most reassuring to me are these words of the Savior, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. My dear young friends, as you go forward in life, don't forget to pray. God lives. He is near. He is real. He is our Father. He is accessible to us. He is the author of truth, the master of the universe. The latch string is out, and the door can be opened to his abundance. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. This great university and your presence here tonight are evidence of the fulfillment of that promise. The Lord bless you, each of you, that in the years to come you may find him when you need him and walk always in gratitude before him. Number two, the second great pillar of truth I mention is this. Life is forever. Twenty-five years ago on a night in July 1933, I slept out on the grassy meadow that rises from beautiful Lake Windermere in England. This was the country of Wordsworth. And as I looked from the lake to the sky in that quiet, lovely place, there passed through my mind the prophetic words penned there nearly a century earlier. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. We are not chance creations in a universe of disorder, you and I. We live before we were born. We were the sons and daughters of God who shouted for joy. We knew our Father. He planned our future. We graduated from that life and matriculated in this. The statement is simple. The implications are profound. Life is a mission, not just the sputtering of a candle between a chance lighting and a gust of wind that blows it out forever. We have learning to gain, work to do, service to give, you and I. We are here with a marvelous inheritance, a divine endowment. I rejoice in these hopeful words of the Revelation, to me some of the greatest and most inspiring of our scripture. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. 
How different this world would be if every man realized that all of his actions have eternal consequences. How much more satisfying your future years may be if in your accumulation of knowledge, if in your relationships with associates, if in your business affairs, if in your courtship and marriage and family rearing, you recognize that you are forming each day the stuff of which eternity is made. The other day I attended the funeral service of a great man, President Claudius Bowman of the Mexican Mission. His influence had been felt from border to border and from sea to sea. He had taught the people, lifted many from their squalor, and patiently raised their sights to undreamed-of goals. Then one minute he was alive, the next dead. As I watched his remains lowered into the dry, gravelly earth of the old Dublin Cemetery, I was dismayed at the thoughts that so wonderful a man and so unselfish a leader should come to so dismal an end. And then as quickly I knew that as surely as the sun would rise over that dry mound in the morning, so too he had but graduated to a new life. His slow smile is there alive somewhere today. His strong hand again is reaching down to lift. His great spirit has not perished. The old mortar board and gown have been laid aside, but the graduate goes on. Brethren and sisters, life is forever. Live each day as if you were going to live eternally, for you surely shall. And whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will arise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. Thus spoke the prophet. It is a pillar of eternal truth on which to build your life. Now the third pillar. The kingdom is here. As you men and women who have rooted for the Cougars know, there is something wonderful about, a be about being associated with a winning team. You ought to have known it oftener. <laughs> Nothing succeeds like success. Every man with a grain of ambition wishes to be a part of a going and growing organization. Need I remind you that you are citizens in the greatest kingdom on earth, a kingdom directed not by the wisdom of men but ruled over by the God of this world. Its present is real. Its destiny is certain. Ours is the day, and this is the kingdom of which the prophets spoke when, as it were, a stone should be cut out of the mountain without hands which should roll forth and fill the earth. No man created this kingdom. It came through revelation from its divine head. And since the days of its inception it has gone forth like a rolling snowball gathering mass. Through the kindness of President McKay I participated in the dedication of the Swiss and New Zealand temples. 
In Switzerland, I shook hands with men and women from Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the British Isles, from Belgium, France, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. In New Zealand, we mingled with Pakihas and Maoris from that great dominion, with those who had come from Australia and Tasmania, from Tonga and Samoa and Rarotonga and Fiji and Hawaii. One cannot have an experience of that kind without sensing the majesty and marvel and destiny of this great kingdom, the Church of our Savior which has been established in preparation for the time when he shall come to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love these words from the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, in which the prophet prayed to the Lord that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon clear as the sun and terrible as an army with banners, that thy glory may fill the earth. Brethren, you who hold the priesthood in this great kingdom as you go your various ways, I know of no better place to find fellowship and good friends than among the quorums of the Church. Where on earth should there be a better fraternity? than in a society each of whose members is ordained to act in the name of the Lord, dedicated to help one another, and whose officers are set apart to this purpose under divine authority. Brethren, you who are here tonight in this graduating class, the quorums of the Church need your talents, your loyalty, your devotion wherever you go, and you need the fellowship and blessings that come of quorum activity in the kingdom of our Father. Where, you young sisters, will you find a better sorority than the Relief Society, whose motto is, Charity Never Faileth, and whose mission it is to bless the poor and wrap up, wrap up the wounds of the sick and the lonely, to further education in the arts and literature, and to bring gladness into the hearts of the women of the Church and increase their skill as homemakers. Active membership in the Church will become as an anchor in the future storms each of you surely must face. The kingdom is here. Cling to the faith. Number four. The fourth great pillar of truth. The family is divine. Some weeks ago I listened to a man tell his personal story. Recently he'd become active in the church after many years of inactivity. The week before he'd been to the temple to be sealed, his wife sealed to him and their children to them. Now he was expressing his gratitude and said in part, until death you, do you part, the words used when we were married is a ceremony of marriage, but it is also a bill of divorcement. I suppose that statement was not new with him, but it struck me forcibly. Brethren and sisters, the family is divine. 
It was instituted by God, who is our Father. It encompasses the most sacred of all relationships. Only through its organization can the purposes of the Lord be fulfilled. I'd like to say that the best is none too good for you young people. That best is eternal companionship, sealed in the house of the Lord under the authority of the holy priesthood. No other organization in all the world even makes a pretense of suggesting it. If you are born in the Church, it is your birthright. If you join the Church, it is likewise your right by adoption. Don't sell it cheaply. Once you have gained it, go forward with the assurance that death cannot break it, that only two forces in all the world can weak weaken and destroy that binding, sin and neglect. Most of you will have children, and in time they'll grow up. I don't know that you can keep them all moving in the right direction. Doubtless we shall have some failures, notwithstanding all we can do. But I am satisfied that nothing will assure greater success in this hazardous undertaking than a program of family life that comes of recognition of the marvelous philosophy of the gospel, that the father of the home is clothed with the priesthood of God, that as the steward of some of our Heavenly Father's children it is his privilege and obligation to provide for their needs that he is to govern in the home in the spirit of the priesthood by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, that the mother in the home is not a chattel or a toy, a servant or a doll, but rather a daughter of God, a soul of love and intelligence and devotion, a creature whose eternal destiny is as great as that of her husband's and without whom he cannot gain eternal exaltation. In such a home, parents are loved and not dreaded, they are appreciated and not feared, and children are regarded as gifts of the Lord to be cared for, nurtured, encouraged, and directed. There will be an occasional argument. There may be small quarrels, but if there is prayer in the family and love and consideration, somehow there will be a residue of affection that will bind forever and a loyalty that will guide always. The Lord bless you, my friends, as you build your homes. Remember that the family is divine. Can you take two more? I name this as the fifth pillar on which to build your lives. Obedience is better than sacrifice. You recognize the source of that statement. It comes from Samuel's counsel to Saul. I haven't the time to expand the subject as it deserves. I'm going to apply it to only one aspect of our doctrine. I speak of the Lord's counsel and promise in matters of health, the word of wisdom. I like that title which has become so much of a cliché with us that we seldom give it a second thought. 
A word of wisdom. Wonderful, isn't it? A recent study by the Utah Foundation indicates that last year the people of this state, this small, sparsely populated Utah, spent $45,447,000 on tobacco, hard liquor, beer, and wine. During that same period, the Church spent approximately the same amount on the construction of new buildings, new lovely houses of worship from Finland to South Africa, from Alaska to Argentina, from Japan to southern New Zealand houses in which the Lord will be honored and men's lives will be improved. Altogether, they cost no more than the people of this state spend on these things against which the Lord has warned us. Not only have we saved our purse and turned it to a better use, we have lengthened our lives by walking in obedience. At a recent convention of the American Medical Association, it was reported, quote, that heavy smokers die seven years before they would if they did not smoke, unquote. Seven years of life. That's as long as most of you spend in high school and college. Seven years. Time enough to become a doctor, an architect, an engineer, a lawyer, what have you. Seven years in which to enjoy the sunrise and the sunset the hills and the valleys, the lakes and the seas, the love of the children who someday will be yours, the friendship of the wonderful people you know. That's a statistical scientific promise confirming the covenant of the Lord that the destroying angel shall pass by those who walk in obedience and not slay them. President Wilkinson told me this talk was to last from 30 to 45 minutes. I'm reminding of, reminded of the man who was going down the highway in a Model T and saw the sign speed 60 miles and said, we'll do our best. <laughs> then there's that other promise that we shall have great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. That's an interesting phrase. I think of an experience once told me by Brother Don B. Colton. He said that while he was in Congress, he taught a Sunday school class in Washington. One Sunday, they were discussing the word of wisdom. Someone asked what was meant by hidden treasures of knowledge. Brother Colton stuttered and stammered and was then saved by the bell. You Sunday school teacher knows what that, Sunday school teachers know what that means. He told the class that they would consider it the following Sunday. During the week, he pondered the question but couldn't come up with an answer. Near the end of the week, he had lunch with a colleague. This man from the East told him that at one time while traveling out West, he found himself in a small Utah town on a Sunday afternoon. Passing a church building, he concluded, concluded to go in and see how the Mormons worshipped. He said it was a peculiar kind of service that one after another the people stood up in the congregation and told of their experiences, expressed their gratitude, and then almost without exception testified that they knew that God lives and that Jesus Christ is his Son, our Redeemer. He drove up the highway that afternoon saying to himself, Surely these people have a knowledge 
even treasures of knowledge which are hidden from the world. Ponder that thought for a moment. My dear young friends, the Lord has given us a key to health and happiness and given it with a promise. It is a pillar of eternal truth. Better to obey than to rationalize and sacrifice. I move to the next of these great virtues. It's associated to the one with the one we've just discussed. I title it, The Lord is Bound. As I see the picture, three great desires govern the thinking of most young people. One, to love and be loved. I've discussed something of that already. Two, to have appreciative and good friends. I've mentioned that. The place to find them is in the quorums. Three, to succeed in life, to secure and enjoy a measure of prosperity. That's why you're here. This is not necessarily evil. President Smith can correct me on this if I'm wrong. President Stephen L. Richards told me once of a talk given by President Joseph F. Smith, President Smith's father. He who was born in the dark days of Far West and who lost his father in the tragic days of Nauvoo and who knew from first-hand experience the meaning of poverty. President Smith said, as I remember the story, that the Lord did not intend that his people should live in poverty and misery forever, that the Lord intended that they should enjoy some of the good things of the earth. Again, at the risk of being considered trite, may I suggest that in my judgment no man who is a member of this Church and has taken upon himself the covenants incident to membership can reasonably expect the blessings of the Lord upon his efforts unless he is willing to bear his share of the burden of the Lord's kingdom. Brethren and sisters, the Lord, speaking through the prophet Malachi, said, Bring ye the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord. Pay your tithes as you go forward in through the years that you may be worthy of the Lord's blessing. I am not here to promise you that you will become wealthy, that every one of you will have a black Cadillac by the time you're 35. But I bear testimony that the Lord does reward generously in one way or another those who keep his commandments. And I assure you that no economics professor who's sitting here with you tonight and no investment counselor to whom you may go can promise you as the Lord has promised. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. But when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. The Lord honors his covenants. Build your lives on that pillar. 
you will walk with a sense of honesty before God and your lives will be the richer for it. Finally, now what's the smile spread when I say finally? I come to the last among these seven pillars of wisdom. I've chosen to designate it with a quotation from the scripture. He that loseth his life shall find it. I have two boys, one is 17, the other 10. The young one likes to tag along after the older one. One day the older one said to his little brother, get lost. I set that before you as a theme of life tonight, get lost. Get lost in some good cause. Forget yourself and go to work. In 1933, when I left for my mission, I traveled through Chicago. The Great Depression was on. I hope you'll never experience one like it. We took the Parmley transfer bus between stations. When we passed what I think was the Chicago Board of Trade building, a woman said to the bus driver, what building is that? He replied, that's the Board of Trade building. Nearly every day, some man whose stock has gone down jumps out of one of those windows. He may have exaggerated, but men were jumping from windows in those days as they saw their fortunes dwindle. Their lives were so wrapped up in themselves and their money that there was nothing worth living for when their money was gone. I think it was Phillips Brooks who said, How carefully most men creep into nameless graves, while now and again one or two forget themselves into immortality. The Savior put it this way, he that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. While riding the plane the other day, I picked up a magazine and read a sickening description of the moral bankruptcy into which the world apparently is falling. The author gave as the dominant reason for this decay an attitude that is characterized by the question, what's in it for me? Regardless of the proposal, the author indicated the almost invariable reply is, what's in it for me? Brethren and sisters, you will never be happy if you go through life thinking of yourself. Get lost. Get lost in a good cause, and the best cause is the cause of the church. The work of the quorums, of the auxiliary organizations, temple work, welfare work, missionary work. You bless your own life as in service you bless the lives of others. I know of a couple in this graduating class. I think they're in this class. For the past three years, this young couple has sent each month to the First Presidency a few dollars which they have saved from their meager earnings. They have sent it because of their great love of missionary work. And out of that sacrifice, a missionary in Brazil, a missionary in Finland, a missionary in Sweden, and a missionary behind the Iron Curtain in Germany have found the means to go forth and teach the everlasting gospel. 
to the people of their own lands. What a marvelous projection. I don't know what that couple's majoring in. I hope they're here tonight. I want to say that as long as they live and regardless of what they do, they'll never extend themselves further than they have extended themselves during the past three years among the people of four nations of the earth to whom the everlasting gospel has been carried by reason of their kindness. Brethren and sisters, on this night of farewell, I have set before you seven great pillars of truth. Each is an eternal verity, proved out of the experience of generations and bearing the endorsement of the word of the Lord. May I repeat them in conclusion? One, God lives and the door of heaven is open to you. Two, life is forever. Three, the kingdom is here. Four, the family is divine. Five, obedience is better than sacrifice. Six, the Lord is bound when ye do what he says. Seven, he that loseth his life shall find it. I bear testimony that herein lies the peace that passeth understanding and the joy unspeakable. The Lord bless you always. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.